Hello and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get up close and personal with our ECE lecturers. I'm Sarah. And I'm Divya. And today we're getting inspired by Senior Computer Science Lecturer, Danielle Lotridge. How are you doing? How was your lockdown? How are you working at the moment? I'm doing great. Uh, I would say that there are parts of the groove of going to work and being on campus and seeing other people and going to the gym that I absolutely miss. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a significant portion of my work that happens in front of a computer. And so whether that's at home or in an office, that can happen either way. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty lucky here in New Zealand. I have family in America and Canada who are not, whose lockdowns are, are pretty different from ours. Just leading on from that question, I was just going to ask if you could explain like how your journey was coming from. So I'm assuming that you were brought up in America and then moved to New Zealand? That's right. Yeah. yeah, so pretty interesting journey. I'm a Canadian and so was born and raised in Toronto and did a computer science undergrad, engineering grad school, and then I was uh, wanting to get out of the country, which I think is a feeling that many other folks in New Zealand might feel, that they're like, okay, this is an amazing place, but I need to go somewhere else for a while. <laughs> and so I moved to San Francisco and uh, had a postdoc at Stanford and enjoyed living in California for several years and got to work with Google uh, for my research there and then fell in love and had a child and worked in Silicon Valley industry. And then uh, in the last few years, uh, my husband and I were thinking, okay, well, what, what's next for us? What's next for our lives? And we, uh, New Zealand was, is always like, you know, the picture of paradise from New Zealand or from Silicon Valley that, you know, all the CEOs have bunkers here or something like that. And so we were like, well, uh, let's, let's apply for jobs in New Zealand. And so we've been here for just over two years. Have you enjoyed it here? Like, would this be part of your top countries that you've settled in at the moment? Oh, absolutely. I think that I've led a, a pretty lucky life in terms of the cities that I've lived in, being Toronto, San Francisco with uh, months spent in Tokyo and Paris and now Auckland, New Zealand. So some really world-class cities. Oh, that's so crazy because when you think Auckland, or when I think Auckland, I don't pair it up with like Paris or like San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, no, and and it's 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 not quite in in the same league in terms of some like world-class influence, yeah. but. New Zealand is definitely in the international consciousness as the be this beautiful place where people should go. I do think that if I, after I graduate, I do want to like move on a little. Always want to go to London, but I don't know. I just like Auckland's such a peaceful town, I think. Compared to like Paris or like San Fran, like that's so busy. It's true. It's true. I think that I am now in a stage of life where I have a young child and so being in New Zealand, especially during a global pandemic with a child, I'm like, this is exactly where I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think New Zealand has coped really well during the whole COVID situation compared to a lot of countries that haven't been as 
fortunate to be living in a place that's been able to control it so quickly. Yeah, combination of good geography for borders that can't be easily crossed and leadership that listens to science. Do you by any chance have like a quick, would you have any words to describe Jacinda, like one word? Because like recently there was like, um, I'll let you do it first, but recently Ashley Bloomfield was asked the same question. Yeah, this is a tough one. One (laughs) word for Jacinda, force of nature. I know that's more than one word. (laughs) (laughs) Did you by any chance hear what um, Ashley Bloomfield did say? No, please tell me. It was like, can I use two words? And she, he, and then so like the reporter was like, yeah. And he was like, prime minister. And I just <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> oh, okay. So do we want to start with why did you choose your like line of study? Like, how did you get into it? Sure. So I would have to start at the beginning, in terms of uh, just early influences in my childhood, and so. I'll, I'll sort of start before the beginning to say that when I was in senior kindergarten, uh, I was hospitalized for meningitis and uh, lost part of my hearing and was in the hospital for several months. And coming out of that, uh, I had some difficulty reintegrating into senior kindergarten and, and school. And so I was pretty shy and didn't talk a lot. And so uh, my teachers put me into a remedial education. And so once a week, I was put into this other classroom with children who had language difficulties. And so starting off, just thinking of myself, family, friends, context teachers, thinking of like Danielle as a remedial student. And then they did some standardized uh, like provincial testing for uh, class placement. And they found that I was in the highest quintile and put me in gifted. And so then I went from the remedial class into the gifted class and had all these opportunities for doing statistics with horse races, going out to like small groups uh, to the mall to study architecture and patterns in architecture. And so I had this, this incredible other influence, which was like, Danielle as a smart kid and then suddenly my family context uh, teachers all saw me and treated me as a smart kid and uh, went into the math club went into the chess club and and I think that that really was was a big influence for me to push me in the direction towards engineering towards math and science and physics and so uh, continuing from that had a lot of time with computers, went to high school, uh, was still like really involved with computers and physics, and got into university uh, 1998 was the year. So it was a dot-com boom time. And so I was thinking like, oh, you know, I'm thinking computers, I'm thinking math, I'm thinking physics, and uh, did really well in computers, had a little bit more challenge there with physics. And I think partly because uh, being like a, a smart kid in high school, I hadn't figured out how to study. Everything just came to me super easily. And so then one of the big challenges of undergrad of university is like finding those limits and then learning how to work hard. And so I was still, I was still working on those skills, but computers was very exciting. Uh, and it was during that boom. 
Then 2002, dot-com bust. So I was close to my graduation at that time, uh, but the, the market had sort of fell out uh, underneath us. And I went then to grad school and chose engineering for grad school. And again, uh, bringing sort of the cultural and contextual influences that there was a professor in human factors engineering who was very friendly, very kind, had a group that seemed like they had a lot of fun together, they laughed, they were supportive, they were interested in each other. And so it was that culture of working together and collaboration that really drew me, uh, as well as the interest in the topic matter, which was focus on understanding people and the interaction between people and machines and how do you build better machines and better support so people can do the amazing things that they're gonna do. Uh, and then, so did my grad school in Toronto and then, as I mentioned before, jumped down to California after that, lived in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, worked for Tumblr and Yahoo, uh, and then had, had my chance to come back to academia after a few years in industry. And I wanted to jump at that chance because uh, the, the windows of opportunities to jump between being a university professor and being in industry, they are, they are there, especially for people in our discipline in engineering that I do see people jumping back and forth. But it is relatively hard because the, the goals and metrics of the work are pretty different. So you have to be publishing in academia, but you have to be like releasing products and doing that kind of work in industry. And so while, while that door was open for me, I did want to jump in, which landed me here in New Zealand. So did you do most of your research projects in New Zealand or did they kind of start overseas as well? Well, I would say that I've been doing research for 15 years at least. Mm -hmm. uh, so really starting in my senior undergrad uh, where I joined a human factors engineering group to study evidence-based medicine and how to support clinicians in making medical decisions. And so part of that study was understanding expert decision-making and how to build, how to format uh, medical information and what devices to provide it on, when to provide it uh, so that clinicians can make better decisions. So it started there uh, and then some fun other projects came up like doing a study on a temperature bandage. And so people would put a bandage on the forehead that would show the temperature of the patient. Uh, that product hasn't really gone out into the marketplace for, for tons of success. Uh, but yeah, so starting there and then doing research in Canada, uh, spending some time in Paris and Japan and doing more research projects there, and then going to California continuing to do research while in industry, so industry-focused research, as well as things that could be published in academic circles, and then coming to New Zealand and starting some fresh research here. I was just going to say, that's so interesting that your, that your experience with what you wanted to do started so early on. Like I was just going to say that the, the change from external perspectives that went from um, not feeling like the smartest kid in the class to mm -hmm. being 
becoming the smartest kid in the class. Like, that's so interesting because I completely, like, get that. Like, I, through, like, intermediate and primary, I don't think anyone viewed me as a bright or, like, that worked hard or anything. And so, I don't know. I just always kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then going into high school, that opinion changed. And, like, resources did change. Teachers wanted to talk to you more. And I think that's so sad how that external force can be such a, like, big factor. Yeah, it it makes me want to spend more time reaching out to kids who are as young as, like, 5 to 10. Because I think that the influence uh, career starts back so early on in life. I didn't realize that because I only thought of what I wanted to do while I was in high school and I barely knew. I just knew I wanted to do engineering or some form of it. I just, I never really realized the impact that you have as a younger child in in wanting like what career path you would go in. But I just thought that was really interesting. How you were talking about the external factors. I think even nowadays, it's such a huge impact on how you perceive yourself that it also kind of determines what you kind of want to achieve because if you think you're not smart and you're surrounded by people that kind of don't encourage you to do well or teachers that are encouraging you to do well I don't think you'll kind of reach out to do those things the external thing is such an important like aspect of academics even though it doesn't really seem like it and it also kind of translates into the culture because I felt like coming into engineering in my first year it was a a lot more competitive than I realized it was because it is meant to be group work and you're meant to be working in teams but there is like an element of people like oh I need to be working yeah be better than someone or something like that and I think that's one thing that's it's so good to hear that people come together encourage each other in that kind of way yeah our our culture is very based on meritocracy and a narrative of like individual talent and brilliance. And so I think that that story doesn't really support the kinds of influences that we're talking about. It really privileges a a certain kind of image of this, say, brilliant child, uh, instead of thinking about how that narrative itself of the brilliant child may be disadvantaging other children who may not fit that particular stereotype. So I just think it's so crazy that something so, like I just never assumed something so early on in your life could like be such a big factor because I just, I don't remember half of like primary, you know, I just, (laughs) so wild. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I I don't really remember back then too much either, Uh, but the notion of like, just that basic self self image and self confidence like what can i do what am i able to do i think that is a, a huge underlying influence for us i just wanted to ask sorry with the um with the bandage the the ones that you stick on your head and measure your temperature how did that work so like was that like a research kind of prototype and then did that get like investments to making into it into like a research project and then it just being like scrapped like how did that work so one of the first jobs that I had was what they called a usability engineer. And so it was the systematic study of various new kinds of technology to see how was it working in practice and should there be any design changes. And so 
two examples of the products where I did usability engineering. One was that temperature bandage. And so it was created by an external company and they were thinking, the hospital was thinking of buying them, but they wanted to ensure that, you know, this was a product that would be usable. And so I created this scenario where there was a, an actor who was the patient wearing this temperature bandage. And then the nurses, I recruited nurses as participants to come and they had to look at the bandage, determine what information it was giving them and what they should do next. And so the nurses would come in for maybe half an hour at a time, interact with the actor, uh, touch the bandage, uh, decide like, is this patient doing okay or should I be doing something else with this patient? And in the end, there was some, some very material type problems with the bandage that it wouldn't lay flat against the forehead. And so it was that kind of like practical implication that was holding that back. I was going to say it could be so useful at the moment because everyone at the moment, if you go, have you like, have you been to any of the shops or anything at the moment? Like, um, like a dentist or like the makeup stores, because mm -hmm. at the moment they check your temperature and they use this little gun thing. But I thought that would be so cool if that like the bandages were made into a real product because then you could visibly see if someone was unwell or not. So maybe there could be a market now. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the market change in the last few months would really advantage certain products that didn't have the right market to do well. I just wanted to touch on the research project that you did some work on. It was the Identifying Emotion Through Implicit and Explicit Measures Fund. So I was wondering if you'd be able to um, kind of give us a rundown on what that was all about. Absolutely. My PhD focused on measuring emotion, especially emotion as relevant to interaction with computers or machines. And partly my study was on how can we recognize emotions and uh, the MIT Media Lab were also working on this very much with their affective computing lab. And they were building robots that could express emotions and identify emotions. And part of this history comes from the 70s and 80s and 90s, where a Stanford professor, Ekman, went to various remote places all around the world to try to find what are human basic emotions. And his theory was that there are six basic emotions. Surprise, <laughs> anger, sadness, happiness, disgust, and fear. And that humans all around the world without any media influence based on our organism would express and understand those six basic emotions. And so this, this history is important because this kind of cultural search for universal human emotions underlies all emotion recognition that's happening today. And so Microsoft, Azure, um, and the company Affectiva, uh, what's going on in driverless cars and understanding uh, driver state in cars, they're all measuring facial expressions for these basic human emotions. So partly I share this pipeline because there may be problems with this pipeline at each place. 
Like, do humans really only express six emotions? Are there other things that humans express? <laughs> my thought is yes. And so my PhD at the end of like the 20, like the, the 20 knots uh, was looking at human emotion and seeing the, the variation of expressions, a little bit of critique towards that uh, basic expression because I think that the humans express more complexity. And so I did a research project in North America and in Japan to show that the same video, it was a National Geographic video on underwater life, could elicit different human emotions in different cultures. And so people in Japan would have different emotional reactions to the same video uh, in Japanese to folks in Canada. And so I wanted to say like, one stimulus doesn't necessarily mean one emotion for people. And there will be cross-cultural differences in how emotion is expressed. And so that particular research project uh, brings together some of the themes of my research, which is understanding critical context and trying to build something that is useful based on that understanding of critical context. What was the actual difference between um, people in Japan and people in Canada who viewed the same video? Well, people in Japan generally were less extreme in how they reported their emotions. And so folks in North America would be like, oh, this part of the video is terrible. And this part of the video is amazing. <laughs> uh, whereas people in Japan were like, yeah, yeah, this is all right. And, oh, not sure about this part. And so there was a, a basic difference in extreme self-reporting. And so how extreme do you understand your own emotion and you, how do you describe how extreme you are feeling? So that would be one. And then other cultural differences. I think it's so interesting um, that there are so, the, the research was based on emotion, just because I didn't, really think that emotion was linked so much to software and things like that. But that's really cool to hear. Yeah, so the kind of engineering that I was trained in, human factors engineering, has a long history of physical ergonomics. And then right when uh, World War Two, World War One, World War Two happened, there was much more focus on an engineering view of fighter pilots in cockpits and understanding the stress of being at war. And so these people, these pilots are incredibly stressed out. Uh, they may not have slept for several days. And so how does that influence their perception of events, their visual perception? How does that influence their tracking ability? How does that influence their decision making? And so we were using an engineering rigor and practice and statistical differences to be able to say humans are have these abilities under these conditions and these other abilities under these conditions. And so emotion uh, became this very important influencer of human abilities. So amazing that you can connect something so technical like software to something so unexplainable in a way like emotions and then make it into something that you can explain there was this really weird like little project thing that I did I didn't do it someone just showed me their project but it was really cool because it analyzes your Twitter account 
So it analyzes each like toy and then like it's enabled to produce like what emotion you would be feeling based on the toy, which I thought was so crazy because it's like people use Twitter as like a diary, you know, as like something to express themselves. And it was really interesting that they could take something so like words and then let you understand what you're feeling based on the tweet. Like I just thought that was so cool. Yeah totally totally interesting mm-hmm. and partly i teach a stage three human computer interaction class and a stage four advanced topics in hci and one of the things that we do in that class is we look at the emotion dictionaries that have been made for words so that kind of analysis it takes an emotion dictionary and it says this word happy is we assign it the value plus three And comfort, we assign that the value plus two. And okay, we assign you the value plus one. And so I'm just giving these examples, but then based on a whole dictionary with those predetermined values is what sort of spits out the output of like, we assign this tweet, this emotional score. And so I think that it's really important for engineers to be able to look under the hood and understand, well, what is the pipeline process that is assigning an emotion score to this input? And we can look at all of that and then systematically look for ways that we think potentially it's not accurate or potentially it could be better. That's so awesome. I think that's so interesting to hear just because engineering has this kind of outward external appearance where it's all numbers and it's very technical and even um, people that don't really know too much about the degree or certain specializations they kind of get this image of what engineering really is so if I went and like I I talk to people I'm like oh I do um, electrical and electronic engineering and they're like oh so like you know you can like fix my TV and stuff. And I'm like, "Mm, I mean, it's not just that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm still, my parents still call me to fix their router. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think that there's that, that myth uh, or well, that, that cultural understanding of engineering is building things. And those skills and techniques can be applied to other domains the messier domains like understanding humans and people too. So with like your long line of experience in in the field, well, I was wondering, do you have anything that you would tell your younger self? So do you have a piece of advice that you would go back to? Absolutely. <laughs> so one, one saying is the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence. <laughs> and so I think that that's a, a basic part of human psychology that we are living in our own experience and we wonder would that other thing be better am i doing the right career or would another career be more suited to me should i work for this company or will i have a better life at this other company and so these are the kinds of questions that young people are dealing with and and trying to figure out like what is the right answer And so I want to keep with this theme of emotion to say, like, go try it. You have a, you have a ton of life ahead of you. Go try it. It's not wasted time. It's something that will make you wiser to make better choices in the future. And so I've been able to jump and try out different kinds of career paths, like go into industry, go back to academia, try different companies. And so all of those experiences are super important. And the way that you learn from them 
is that you are in that context and all the surprising and unanticipated influences, you're dealing with those, you're learning from those, you're feeling the experience and feeling the experience is not instantaneous. It takes hormones and adrenaline and cortisol and it, it takes a while. You have to do it to eventually have that experience and record those memories and feel that those memories were either good things or not good things. And so in fact, going somewhere where you have a poor experience is good for your life because then you know what you need to avoid in the future. And so the fear of making mistakes, I think, can hold people back. But I would say go towards those risky experiences and feel what it's like there so then you can make better decisions in the future. I assume that's so great because I think like with a uni experience, everyone goes through uni thinking, okay, so you're going to do your degree and that's it and then you'll get a job but it's, it's really naive that's what I mean okay so it's so naive because I I didn't think that my uni experience would end up the way it did and that wasn't just because I changed my mind or anything it was like it was more so because of external factors but it's just it's so reassuring to know that there's other people that take paths that aren't completely just like I'm gonna do my four-year degree and that's it and I feel like more people should be able to know that it's okay not to like to take longer than four years because I still feel a bit weird taking more than four years to finish my degree. So whether it's like changing your mind or experiencing something new or like where it could be something that was bad that could influence why you're taking so long. I think it should be more normalized that people do go to uni for longer and it's not the experience that you think or you see on TV, you know? No, I was just going to say I totally agree just because um, when I was in second year, so when I started doing electrical, I had major doubts whether this was what I wanted to do with my life and I ended up splitting up my papers and taking a biology paper because I really enjoyed bio and really enjoyed that class and everything but at the end of the day at the end of the year I also really liked my electrical papers and I ended up just sticking with electrical because I felt like I saw myself doing more of that in the future compared to anything to do with med or bio and at times I'm like oh I like kind of feel like I wasted a year and I've put myself behind so all my friends are slightly ahead of me but I think at the end of the day if I hadn't done that I wouldn't know like I'd still be sitting here every time I didn't understand something in class I'd be like oh maybe I should have just gone and done that instead but now I'm I've committed to something and I know that it's because I want to do it yes absolutely so that's that's exactly the quintessential story that would go with that kind of advice or that kind of way of being but coming back to the to the topic of like norms and expectations, one interesting aspect of the norms and expectations in Silicon Valley are that people switch companies every, say, 18 months to two years. And so that you have this expectation that you're not going to have a career lifetime at a company, but that you're just going to like jump around. And so I think that the norms and expectations are super important and uh, will set what you believe should you should be doing after undergrad. Do you have any memorable or funny anecdotes from your career thus far? So I was racking my brain for something funny. I feel like I don't, I don't I'm like, oh, what was funny? I know that there's lots of funny things. I feel like 
there are uh, some episodes of the show Silicon Valley where I like lived through those scenes working at Yahoo. So um, one example is that if you build something and then you have to do some testing for it, uh, not just quality assurance testing, but a sort of acceptance testing or usability or user experience testing. And so the incredibly like smart engineering team will pass their prototype on to a research facilitator and then put that product or prototype in front of various people to try and use. And sometimes they hate it. And uh, sometimes the uh, I've been in the situation where I was like, I think that this prototype is a bad idea. <laughs> uh, we were, uh, a product team was building a new app and the first action that you had to do was join. And partly the joining action was based on some analytics data that found once people joined something, they were much more active users. And so the product manager took this on board, was like, okay, what I need to do is get more people to join first thing, and then I'm gonna have a super successful product. And so I was like, well, you know, do you wanna join something? And so I created this workshop where I was like, okay, find five services online and go and join them right away in the next 15 minutes. And so I was trying to push people through like the product team, the engineers to experience, well, what, what are we asking our users to do? Let's have to do it ourselves. And so trying to get them to join things, they didn't really do it. Uh, so I was like, see, joining things are hard. It's, it's sort of like this, you know, emotional commitment that you're making. And so what I had to do to finally convince this team was to bring in user after user, put the prototype in front of them and video how they would be like, oh no, I'm not joining that, no way. <laughs> I'm not putting my information in right now, no thanks. Uh, and so I showed this reel to this like sort of pre-recorded reel of person after person being like, oh no, never, I wouldn't want to join that, maybe another time. And so it was this sort of like embarrassing, awkward situation where I was like sitting beside this person where their product was being just like reamed by person after person after person. But this is what was necessary in order to uh, shift their vision and say like, okay, you want people to join, but this is not gonna work. This is not the right way to do it. Oh, that's so interesting because I work retail. So every time someone like makes a purchase, we gotta ask if they want to join like our data database. And the biggest thing is that people don't want emails, but like it's so crazy because it's such, they, sometimes you get people and they take about five, not five minutes, but like a really long time to decide whether they should join or not, but it's just an email and a name. So like the idea that it's like an emotional commitment, I completely understand. <laughs> With mentioning the TV show, what is your like favorite TV show at the moment by any chance? So I'm a total sci-fi nerd and uh, I love Black Mirror and a couple of shows. One show that I'm watching right now is Devs, and it's amazing. Highly recommended. Another one is Upload. But oh my god, if you're a sci-fi kind of person, did you by any chance watch Doctor Who? Oh, I didn't. I didn't really watch Doctor Who. I was more of like a Star Trek: The Next Generation sci-fi oh, nerd. I see. I see. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite book at the moment? Then 
Uh, I don't have a favorite book at the moment. I'm reading various things for my research projects. And so that takes out the, my own reading for pleasure. Though I am reading uh, Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince with my daughter. And that's a, an amazing book for all ages. Um, are you team Apple or team Android? <laughs> so for my own personal devices, I am team Apple. Uh, but I have various development projects and those are all on Android because mm -hmm. Android makes development possible. So yeah, I feel like the story of my life is that I don't like to choose just one team. <laughs> I like to be friends with all the teams. What's your, what's your must have like Apple product? Apart from like the iPhone, but like what's your must have? Well, I, I feel like the, that there's less pop-up boxes in Apple. Like in Windows interfaces, it's just like, and now deal with this, and this is updating now, and oh, Wi-Fi lost, and blah blah blah. That oh. there's there's constantly like these things popping up that in, that sort of interrupt your workflow, and Apple manages to bring that all aside and not interrupt a person as much. I see. I can I completely agree. I just. I just don't. Windows, just all the little, like, the red crosses they have are just so different and they're so aggressive compared to the Apple ones. The Apple ones just seem really peaceful. <laughs> Divya is a massive Apple, like, fanatic. I just had this ambition that if you work at Apple, that you know how in every, like, company you have, like, the storage cupboard of, like, no notepads and like pens and stuff but apple would just have ipads <laughs> and then like the little cup of pens would just be like apple pencils and i think that's so cool because apple could do that they could be completely paperless and it'd be great yes apple is a is a very intense institution <laughs> the people who work for it are incredibly smart and incredibly dedicated and do very intense work. What was your experience as a female working in the industry? Thinking about potentially talking about Marissa Mayer uh, as CEO of Yahoo and that it was fun working at a company at a time uh, with female leadership. It's fun being in New Zealand at a time with female leadership. There is a lot of complexity with that. I was working at Yahoo when Marissa Mayer had twins and converted her office into a playroom for the twins and only took two weeks off for maternity leave before working. Wow. And so I think that Marissa Mayer, unfortunately, like many female leaders, uh, have critiques on both sides. It's like, oh, you didn't take a long enough maternity leave. This is not a good mentor. Or this is not a good vision for women. This is not a good example for women. Whereas, you know, if she had taken a longer leave and the company like hadn't been under her leadership, like there would have been critique on that side. And so, uh, yeah, it was just, it was fascinating being with, being at Yahoo at that time, you know, running into Marissa in the bathroom and being like, okay, you know, these, these sort of like superstar figures are just right around me. Oh, that's really cool. I think, I'm so glad you brought up that topic about female leadership, because I think that's something that's kind of coming into more light recently and I didn't coming into engineering um there is that as a female I think there is that kind of stigma of oh most engineers are males and 
we hear the facts all the time saying that apparently there's more, I think there's more CEOs named John than female CEOs in the world. I heard that fact recently. Oh. And I was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, shocking. <laughs> yeah. Taking Jacinda, for example, I think she's such a good role model for emails because personally for me coming from um, someone who isn't super bold or feels a little bit uncomfortable bossing around people and telling people what to do and you know kind of when you think of a boss you think of someone who's quite um, aggressive and feel like it's it's so good to have those female leaders who can kind of lead with compassion or empathy and kind of bring comfort when they when they lead so it's a different type of leadership style and I think it's such a good time to witness that while we're growing up yeah absolutely like just how there's cultural understandings of like what does a smart kid do uh what does an engineer do am I you know can I make it as an engineer like I think that we have right now culturally a pretty narrow idea of what leadership means and that the strong female leaders that we have are showing alternatives and that really they're being appreciated right now. The idea where like people are being like, oh, is that too short of a maternity leave? Is that like bad? That whole idea, like that question would not be asked if it was a man. And that like the conversations opening that there's so, if you were a man, there's such different conversations that are happening if there was a woman in power, you know? And I think it's so good that like it's starting more women are becoming in power so that like that changes that conversation because that shouldn't be a conversation really absolutely agree and okay so ice cream is like my favorite thing like if i could eat ice cream for literally like every meal like but do you have a favorite like ice cream what i would say i have two ice cream moods Either I'm in like green tea ice cream mood where it's like a sophisticated mood or I'm like, I need like the sweetest, most like punch me in the face, like happiness making ice cream. And that would be more of the pralines and cream variety. Me? Oh, that's so hard. I feel like, I feel like I enjoy all ice creams, but I do at the moment, I really do like Halo Top ice creams. I think they're not, I feel like they might not be um, the best quality ice cream because they're not creamy or anything at, at all. In fact, they're really solid frozen and you have to wait till they kind of thaw out to be able to eat them. But the fact that they're mostly protein and I think that's what's selling me on it. So I, when I eat it, I don't think I like the ice cream. I think I like the fact that when I eat it, I don't feel guilty eating it. <laughs> See, I love that that emotion description. It's like, <laughs> I'm not happy from the taste. I'm happy from the thought that this is protein in my mouth. <laughs> Danielle, do you have any favorite music that you listen to a lot or artists or anything like that? Hmm. Well, I've been enjoying some of what the young folks are listening to. So Billie Eilish is pretty cool. Uh, I'm a big fan of The Weeknd. It's been so good to hear from you and to get to know you better. And it, honestly, it was so inspiring looking through all the research that you've done. Um, and I think it's really cool to have such like strong female lecturers and kind of influences in academia to kind of look up to. So thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. It's been, it's been really great to getting to know you better. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Bye, everyone.